This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, Selamat Pagi Malaysia. It is 6am Thursday, the 7th of July. And uh, joining me, well, in an undisclosed location, far, far away. We'll across disclose it. Yeah. We'll disclose it. Well, you have some friends. <laughs> As we know, there were two people who wrote in that Punch, uh, Puchong Rocks. So Shazana Mukta is joining us from Puchong. And of course, I'm Wong Shaoning in the studio to keep you company until 10 a.m. Uh, we, As usual, it's a lovely Thursday. And I think for some people, right, today is actually 7-7. So lots of shopping going on. Um, oh yeah, seven seven. I for some reason, yeah, it did not occur to me that seven seven could be a shopping day. But you're right. Any double digit date typically heralds a sale online somewhere. Yeah, of course they want to come up with all these dates to encourage shopping as usual. So for <clears throat> so I assume that seven a.m. on the seventh of July will be like the time to go check out any deals online. Well, you got two chances, 7am and 7pm, okay? So you never know. <laughs> but nonetheless, we also have a super packed day today. Um, at 7.15, we're going to be discussing fixed income strategy in this very volatile economic environment with Manpreet Gill at Senate Chartered Private Banking. And then um, later on at 7.30, we're going to discuss the political prospects of UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Can he survive the current exodus from his government? I mean, the headlines are coming as we speak. This is a really fluid situation. Um, but we'll have Patrick Diamond from Queen Mary University of London to give us some context into what's going on and what could happen moving forward. Yeah, this is a really interesting story. I've been, I've been looking at some of the UK newspaper headlines and I have to say they have been hilarious, okay? Uh, meanwhile, at 7.45, we'll dissect Bank Negara's Malaysia's decision to increase the overnight policy rate by 25 basis points. And then what does this mean for the economy and us Malaysians? All this and more on The Morning Run. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. 6.07, you're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Wong Shaoning together with Shazana Mukta. It is Thursday, the 7th of July, and that was... Shangri-La by the Kings. Maybe some of y'all are heading to your own personal Shangri-Las because it is a public holiday on Monday and I'm sure the exodus on the roads has already begun. That is true. Monday, uh, Sunday actually is uh, oh, anticipated to be uh, Hari Raya Haji, Hari Raya Aidil Adha. And of course, it's a two-day holiday, so it's going to spill over to Monday. Um, and yes, uh, hopefully everyone is looking forward to a long weekend. Yeah, so are we. <laughs> We're looking forward to the food also. I already see the um, the stalls uh, set up to sell all the 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 festive the festive delicacies. So uh, do enjoy your break, but of course be safe on the road. Uh, one thing that hasn't been very safe in the last few months is cryptocurrencies. Completely has seen a meltdown on a year-to-date basis. Ether down sixty-seven percent. Crypt. Uh, Bitcoin down 55%, but what's amazing is just the intraday fluctuations, which mm. led me to choose this article because I'm, I'm that kind of, you know, investment nerd uh, from the Singapore Straits Times. And it's entitled MAS Weighing More Crypto Safeguards for Consumer. And this is based on the back of their Senior Minister and Coordinating Minister for Social Policies, Taman Sharma. Uh, Shamugaradam on Monday where he said that the MAS which is the Monetary Authority of Singapore is considering having additional consumer protection rules including limiting retail participation participation and imposing rules on the use of leverage or borrowed capital when transacting in cryptocurrencies. 
I mean, that's quite an interesting development, yeah, the sense, in the sense that the Singapore government is looking to limit retail participation, which means it won't be so easy for just the average individual to be able to invest in cryptocurrencies, given its very uh, volatile nature. And I think it's a fact that those many of those who invest in cryptos may not fully understand how it operates, even those who... Say they understand, may not understand. I mean, we can, and this is evident based on what happened earlier this year with Terra USD, the stable coin that was meant to be pegged to the US dollar. It was meant to stay stable. It did not stay stable. It imploded in spectacular fashion. Yeah. Um. So it just goes to show that there's still a lot about this current asset class that that remains very, very uncertain and and just uh, you know just uncertain. I think it's it's. Honestly, this asset class to me is in its nascent stage. I, I mean, I, I, for those who, who listen to me will know that I'm not a big fan of it, partially because I don't know how to value it. I don't know what is this, how, because it's not like a company where there are earnings, okay, or there is an, there's an intrinsic value. There is, to me, no earnings. So what do I base it on? A lot of it is demand and supply, which means momentum, sentiment, which it's very hard for me to calculate or to put a finger on. So, and we can see this because when interest rates completely were, you know, the interest rate cycle turned and people were taking a risk-off approach, suddenly all cryptocurrencies collapsed and the volatility, intraday volatility, volatility really shocked me. Which reminds me also because this, this asset class is unique in that it trades 24 hours, 7 days a week. There's no respite. You know, and what is amazing to me is you can even see cryptocurrencies especially becoming super volatile on weekends. Hinting to me, it's a lot of retail investors when they, when it's their downtime, they are busy trading. So that's my takeaway. That's an interesting observation there, Shaoning. And uh, as you said, it's hard for you know, it's hard to understand how to value this asset class. And I think we can see this debate playing out in so many different forums. Yeah, I've been keeping an eye on what's happening over in the U.S. because last month, um, two senators uh, introduced a bill uh, that would regulate cryptocurrencies. And there's a lot of discussion on mm. whether their proposal is the right way forward. One of the most controversial elements of this bill that they're proposing is that cryptocurrencies would be classified more as a commodity rather than a security. So they see cryptos as something akin to like gold. You know, I think a lot of times there have been parallels drawn between cryptos and gold. And so it would be uh, regulated more as a commodity. But I think we can also see that the parallels with gold aren't exact, right? There, no. There's still so many, there's so many variations yeah. between crypto and gold. And so that's not really the, they're not really synonymous in that sense. And what's interesting is the, the reaction of different governments, right? So Singapore is taking a very paternalistic approach, saying that, you know, this is not really suitable for retailers. We're going to be careful how this is advertised. They've removed advertisements, cryptocurrency ATMs from public spaces. They clearly want this. They're not saying no, it's not. They're not saying let's ban this, but let's put a bit of like cold water on this asset class because of mm. this volatility. And then on the other hand, you have El Salvador embracing it completely and it's, it's used as a means of, a, you know, a store of value, an accepted store of value. You can buy things on cryptocurrencies. But I think this is its early days. We'll be watching this very interesting space. And for you guys out there who are trading cryptocurrencies, wow, fortune to the brave maybe. 
Hang in there, guys. But up next, some messages. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're listening to The Morning Run. It is 6-19, Thursday, 7th of July. And I, Wong Xiaoning, will be keeping you company with Shazana Mukta. Should have been the other way around in terms of introduction. Uh, but that very hippie chillax song is Time, You and I by Krong Bin. Uh, up next, we've got a interesting article. And you chose this, Shaz. Is it because it's the is it the bane of your life? service uh, charges no <laughs> not really no not for me at least because i haven't really been eating out for the past couple of years just <laughs> given the situation that we've been in right but as economies as the economy reopens and as more and more people go out um, i'm sure this is something that people will be uh, will be noticing more i suppose especially given the current economic conditions so let me explain let's explain the story yeah? yes so let's give it some coming, context some color this is a story coming out of india and this is regarding the service charge. No, now, so for those, I've never been to India myself, but um, restaurants in India, like they do in Malaysia, uh, put a service charge when you dine outside. So this service charge is um, meant as a form of, it, it is meant as a form of tip in some way. And it's uh, supposed to be distributed among the staff of the restaurants, not just the waiters, but also the kitchen staff, the back end staff, um, just really a, a way of Equi- equitably uh, sharing out those um, th- that income. Yeah? Mm. Okay, so, so th- what's happening now is that the government has actually said that um, restaurants are not supposed to impose this service charge. Uh, customers only need to pay what the cost of the meal is as well as government taxes. And this service charge is not something that customers need to pay. So this came out after years of customer complaints. You know, why are they being, uh, why is this service charge being imposed? Um, so it's come to that head now and um, restaurants are fighting back. Restaurants are saying, no, we do have a right to impose service charge. So that's the debate that's happening um, in the Indian hospitality sector at the moment. OK, let's bring this conversation a little bit back home and explain the difference because sometimes I get confused. What's the difference between a service charge and a service tax? OK, so according to our Royal Malaysian Customs Department. I'm actually looking at the website now. So a service charge is a charge over and above the cost of goods or services imposed by a business in a bill, normally applied in the hospitality industry, and the average rate is about 10%. So by right, it's supposed to be pulled into a fund, which is then paid to the workers of that industry. So if it's a restaurant, I guess you collect the 10% and then later on you distribute it. And I know that different restaurants have different formulas as to the front of the house, how much they get, and then the back of the house, how much they get. And service charges can be a replacement for tipping charges, though not necessarily so. Now, this is different from service tax or government tax, which is a legislative tax imposed under the Service Tax Act of 1975. So it's different. One accrues to the business, the other, which is service tax, accrues to the government. So let's clarify that, right? So this is about what restaurants get to collect for themselves, for their staff, and for the service rendered. Now, are you a big fan of service charges? Do you think restaurants in the first place should have the right to charge or should it be up to how the customer feels he has been treated in terms of the quality of the food and the service? I mean, that's the conundrum, right? That's that's kind of the reason that tipping exists in the first place. You know, you've got some countries, very notably in the US, where waiters aren't 
paid minimum wage. And so they have to make up their wages through tips. And so there's a very strong tipping culture there. But in other places where there is a minimum wage, perhaps there's less incentive or, or less need for this tip to be imposed in that way. And hence, it can be more discretionary mm. on behalf of the customer. And just to flag that uh, last year, uh, our court of appeal, uh, actually ruled that um, businesses cannot use this service charge to top up minimum wage. So businesses yeah. here actually have to pay the minimum wage as a standalone and any service charge comes up as a top up to that. So that's important to note. Um, but yeah, again, whether it, I guess it depends on how the circumstances, how the industry works, you know, for one thing, I, I feel. Um, the other thing is also that, you know, for me, serv- I don't mind paying for good service. But then what happens if I don't like the service? Is there any recourse to me? That's the question I have, right? And according, according to this TRP article, uh, no, you cannot refuse to pay service charges provided that it's told to you at the onset. That's why when you go to a restaurant, sometimes you see on the door, right? They say we charge 10% service charge. That's because... After that, you can't complain that you weren't well-treated and you didn't want to pay. So that's apparently the caveat. So there's no like clawing back on that. And the other reservation I have is I really want to know in Malaysia, how many restaurants really, after they collect the service charge, give it back to the employees? Very true. There's no transparency on that. You kind of just have to take it at face value. You have to trust the establishment that they're taking your money and giving it to the employees as they say they are. But we really don't know that. No, we don't. And if you are such an employer, you are breaking the law. It's an offence under the Anti-Profiteering Act 2011, by the way. Uh, But let us know what you think. You can tweet in at BFM Radio. Of course, WhatsApp in 018-789-8899. Do you like paying service charges? Does it bug you uh, let us know what you think but up next we've got the 6.30am news bulletin and to take us there is my newest favourite song Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush keep it here BFM 89.9 and that was Float On By by Modest Mouse, uh, Mouse. I'm sure Boris Johnson is thinking hoping that applies to him uh, 6.40 you're listening to The Morning Run it's Thursday the 7th of July and as usual at this time of the morning we're looking at all the international headlines that have caught our eye and it's just going to be all about the UK isn't it Shaz? Shaz we can't hear you for the moment um, but there I- we go. I am back. <laughs> yes, that mute button has been unmuted. Um, but indeed, uh, there's been a, there's a lot happening over in the UK. Yesterday, the news broke about the two cabinet ministers, Rishi Sunak and um, Sajid Javid, who resigned quite suddenly and within minutes of each other. Uh, today, there have been more resignations. And I think the call, the clamor for Boris Johnson to resign is just growing louder and louder. Well, um, let me give you some new headlines, okay? So, uh, Welsh Secretary has also resigned. Can you believe that? And Michael Gove, of course, like you say, Gunnar Sack, please go. So, it looks like this, it's like a question, how long do you think Bojo can stick around? And I, I've, lis- I've listened to so many podcasts about this, whether it's it's the Financial Times, The Economist, uh, BBC. And there's a, there's a running thread on this in that the people that want Bojo to go, they seem to be very uncoordinated because they come out and resign sporadically, you know. And I don't know whether it's it's because really, truly, there was no coordination. And as as the rats noses, the ship is sinking, more and more rats are kind of leaving. And whether that will eventually lead, lead to him just admitting that, yes, he doesn't have the confidence of the house and then resign. 
Yeah, I think so far he has been digging his heels in. Um, Boris Johnson has said that now is not the time um, for him to resign, citing the conflict in Ukraine, citing the citing the economic conditions at the moment. Um, so he, for now, is quite adamant that he wants to stay on as prime minister. But uh, yeah, how long can I guess how long can he remain um, in that position if uh, if everyone is asking for him to step down? Yeah, so let's give some context in terms of how many resignations he's faced. So we've highlighted the, the big names, right? So it's the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the, the Health Secretary. But guess what? There's actually been more than 35 government resignations and many, many more Tory MPs denounce, denouncing him. And this is according to the Financial Times. So, um, you know, it ended with apparently Boris Johnson being confronted in Downing Street by once loyal cabinet ministers to basically say, you know, resign with dignity, the game is up. And in the UK, that has been the case. Whether it was Margaret Thatcher's time, you know, after a while, all of them just kind of, is the word cave-in? Is that the right word? Perhaps, yeah, I guess. It's like dominoes falling, yeah? Or, um, yeah. And I think, you know, what was the, the, the final straw, according to the FT, was Johnson's actual, actual untruthful account of what he knew about the past misconduct of Chris Pincher, that is an unfortunate name, who he appointed as the deputy chief whip in February, who then quit in disgrace last week after drunkenly groping two men in a private men's club. Mm. So, so this is the case that has um, broken. This is this is what's <laughs> this is what's causing um, Boris Johnson's downfall. Because as you've called him many times in the past, shouting, he's Teflon, right? He's managed to survive so many other scandals, uh, but this could just be the scandal too many. Um, yeah, but then what happens to the UK? Then uh, he resigns. Uh, there's a possible new candidate. Does it mean they'll be calling? They'll be calling for early elections, which is what Chris Starmer of the Labour Party wants, right? They basically say you don't have the confidence of the entire August House. Everyone should resign. But I don't know whether it will get to that stage. Actually, I mean, the Conservative Party won um, a convincing majority back in twenty nineteen. That's what Boris Johnson. That that sort of cemented mm. Boris Johnson's rule in power. Yeah, so they don't technically have to call elections until twenty twenty five, until January twenty twenty five. The Conservatives still have a majority in the in the parliamentary houses. So, again, whether a general election will be called is is one of those things that. Uh, it could be, but it doesn't really need to be, depending on what happens. Mm. If there is the new prime minister that comes in, um, whether he will, he or she will want to, I suppose, uh, cement their authority with a general election, uh, that's something that remains in question. Well, we'll find out more when we speak to Patrick Diamond. He's the Associate Professor of Public Policy at Queen Mary University of London. He'll be giving us his views on what's happening in the UK. That's going to be happening at 7.45. Uh, but we're going to head into some messages. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, and that was In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel. It's 6 51, Thursday, the 7th of July. And Shazana Mukta and I, Wong Shaoning, are keeping you company until 10 a.m. At this time of the morning, we are glancing through all the local headlines that have caught our eye. Uh, Shaz, do you want to start? What has, um, what do you want to sure. focus on? Well, one thing that I'll be looking out for today is this report on the supplies of cooking oil, chicken and 
eggs, uh, which is supposed to be presented to the Jihad Against Inflation Special Task Force. They're meeting today. And this is according to the minister in the Prime Minister's Department, Datuk Sri Mustafa Muhammad. So this report is expected to be presented by the Domestic Trade and Consumer Affairs Ministry. And um, the minister said that this is important because many issues have been raised by the people in relation to supplies of these things. Um, so, yeah, I'd be looking to see what exactly this special task force will do when they uh, see the results of their report. Yeah, because uh, so far they're just, they haven't come up with any concrete suggestions, right, in terms of how to help. Well, this has only, th- th- how long has this task force been in, in place, right? Jeez. But again, a week. I, hey, but, you know, hurry up, hurry up, because uh, the cost of living pressures are real. And the question is, how is this task force different from many other task force that look at cost of living? Um, again, this duplicity of uh, agencies or government bodies handling the same thing. Um, I mm. think it really needs to prove itself lah, at this stage. Clearly. Uh, the other story that's got my eyes, the front page of the Straits Times. And uh, it's take responsibility. An environmental group wants a commission of inquiry formed to get to the bottom of the Baling floods, which some people have blamed on logging and deforestation. The NGO says the government should not wash its hands off this deadly incident. And I agree. I, th- I think, you know, we, we keep hearing sto- stories of flooding, be it in Klang, be it in Baling. And, you know, we, we watch the devastation and then these poor people have to suffer, you know, either, you know, the, the damage to so much of their lives, right? Because it, it just, it's, it's really money. Money is one thing, then there's, there's human lives involved. And then it happens again and again. Because, and we know it's going to happen again and again because of climate change. But is there any uh, accountability for it in the first place? That's right. And I one of the sad things is we hear these calls, especially when something has happened. But uh, this is an accumulation of developments, right? It, it, it happens over a period of time. And then when a, I suppose... Uh, inclement weather happens, you know, certain more rain rainfall than expected. Mm. That's when it causes a tipping point that causes perhaps environmental damage to uh, surface in this manner. Yeah. So again, it, it points to a, perhaps a lack of vision, a lack of forward thinking in terms of how we balance development and environmental conservation. And there are many calls now. There's been, as you mentioned, environmental groups. There's also lawyers for environmental rights that say that um, there will be looming legal challenges against the Kara state over what's happening in Baling with regard to the floods. Yeah. Another story that, I've, that has caught my eye is in the itch. Um, CEO Morning Brief and the headline is Bestinet Office Raided by MACC so Bestinet uh, is one of the, is an IT system provider that supplies the foreign workers centralised management system in Malaysia so the news portal uh, cited uh, anonymous sourcing that MACC raided several firms owned by a businessman with the Dato Street title and it's this all about the recruitment of in Bangladeshi migrant workers and I think it's somewhat related to these 25 companies that have been uh, chosen to be involved in the recruitment of Bangladeshi migrant workers and I think you know we've talked about this countless times on the show because many businesses be it plantations services manufacturing hospitality are really crying out for the government to to do something quickly to ease these constraints in terms of services provided 
This is definitely a story to keep watch on because this MOU, the implementation of an MOU that would allow the movement of foreign workers from Bangladesh to Malaysia has been in limbo uh, because of, of, of just the inability of, of the two sides to agree. And part of it is because of this uh, limitation of in the number of agencies that are allowed to bring in workers, right? Yeah. Uh, and the fact that there's now this investigation over um, irregularities, I think it's all very concerning. It really points to just how precarious the system is yeah. and and just um it's not it's not good for the economy no, and, and you can listen that's to, no understatement you can listen to so many podcasts we've done i mean but the most recent one was with call you ling on this matter so do do check it out on our app or on our website but very quickly singapore straits times always you know turn to them for our local politics headline all eyes on whether anwar ibrahim and rafizi ramli can make a team in pkr so we'll be investigating this story probably tomorrow so do tune in uh, but up next we've got the 7 a.m. news bulletin, and to take us there is You Make Loving Fun by Fleetwood Mac. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station.